Hi guys, welcome back to the Original Judo Podcast. This week on the show, we are joined by an international coach. Um, he's former GB coach. He's a former, I think he's seven-time national champion. That's the one bit of research I've done for, for this episode. Um, and he's now coaching over in the Netherlands uh, with the national team. I am delighted to welcome my old Uki. <laughs> I used to drag him around like a small child on a daily basis. Um, That's not quite how I remember it, but okay. <laughs> uh, Matt Percy to the show. Matt, how are you doing? I'm very well, James. Thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> no, mate, it's an absolute pleasure. I think you've got a wealth of experience. That, um, it'd be great to kind of tap into. Um, but again, it's been a few years since you retired. So just in case uh, there's people who don't know you, can you just give us a background, <laughs> like how you got into judo? Um, race through to kind of where you are, where you got to as an athlete and then where you are now. Okay. So I started judo because a friend that I went to first school with, primary school, um, his mum wanted him to start and um, he didn't want to go on his own. So she asked if I'd go along with him, which I did. And after three weeks, he had a not so pleasant experience. Um, he actually peed his pants on the judo mat. Um, <laughs> That's a good start. Yeah, so um, so that was the end how of old? his judo how old? Career, That's, I feel bad laughing now. How old? I'm assuming he's like oh, a... I think we were like six, six and a half. Uh, yeah, I think that's acceptable. Yeah, yeah. And like, it, it was back in the day where like, Dom was pretty strict even back then. So like, if you kept going to the toilet too often, he was like, no, stay on the mat, do your judo. And I think he, he may have got this call a little bit wrong. So anyway, unfortunately, my, my poor friend who I won't name, uh, that was the end of his judo experience. But for, for me, I loved it. And then my brother started a couple of weeks after, I think, because my friend stopped. So my brother was four and I was six and a half. And that was our, our first sort of insight into judo. And I was very fortunate that um, it just so happened that the club we were taken along to was Pinewood Judo Club. So Don Werner was my coach. And... There's an incredible history in the club. And as I came to the club, you sort of got to, to learn from some great role models. Uh, Nicola Fairbrother, uh, Karen Roberts, players who are world Olympic medalists. And you were sort of set on that trajectory without even realising. Love that. And then yeah. you obviously had a very successful career uh, yourself. Um as a as an athlete, like what are your highs? What are the high points of your career as a player? Um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because like when you get asked that question, you you tend to think of the, the medals you won or the the high performances in the, in the competitions. And more and more, I like I realised that 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 was why we were doing it. We were aspiring to to find out what we were capable of and and see what we could win. But actually, those weren't the, the most fun experiences. The most fun experiences were with teammates, were with people like yourselves on camps like Slovenia and Japan, where you kept putting your feet on my bed. Like, they were actually the highs. Um, I don't want to know what the lows were then. <laughs> the lows of Mittersill. Remember that camp in Mittersill? <laughs> hey, there's still video evidence up on them. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but in terms of, of performances, competition performances, uh, I, I was fifth at Europeans. Um, I won some World Cup medals. In fact, in, in three weight categories, 73s, 81s and 90s. Um, and then I suppose the, the end of my career was the, the Commonwealth Games in, in Glasgow, uh, which, was a, which was a huge high. It was, a, this might be a little bit painful for you, James, because uh, your experience was a little bit different from mine. But um, to, to finish with an event in what was my adopted home country uh, in front of a vociferous home crowd and managed to get to the final uh, was a, was an amazing way to, to finish. So winning silver there and um, again, the finish with the, the Commonwealth Games experience where it was a wonderful way to, to end my competitive career. Did you always know, so obviously you're a high performance coach now, did you always know you wanted to move into coaching? Now, like I know you kind of had an early shift into or early experience, I guess, of high performance coaching six years before you actually retired. Yeah. Um, 
No, I really wasn't uh, clear on what I was going to do. I, I remember actually being worried about that and having a conversation with David Somerville when I was at Judo Scotland, sort of saying, like, knowing that I was getting towards the end of my career, I think I was probably early 30s, and sort of saying to David, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I, I haven't finished university. I've started university twice, put it on hold twice. Um, I'm really sort of unsure what what comes after this stage of my life. And David, who normally is um, very structured, very planned, very organised, uh, very deliberate, was like, don't worry about it. I was like, what you mean? don't worry about it. <laughs> he was like, and he was genuine when he said this. He was like, all the skills you'll ever need, you've, you've learned from your time as, a, as an athlete, as a judo player, as a, as a full-time competitor. He said, those skills are transferring to whatever you decide to do. So don't worry too much about it. Just enjoy this experience whilst you've got a few years left and it will take care of itself. And as much as I wanted to, and I took solace from that, I was still a little bit like, oh, because I, I also like to plan and sort of have an idea. Um, but it, it did reassure me. Uh, and then I did a, a couple of jobs at Juno Scotland. I did the events and communications assistant. Uh, and, and enjoyed that. So working in judo, I thought, oh, yeah, there's something maybe in that. It might not necessarily be coaching, but I, I think I want to stay in judo. And then um, my brother had a, or has still a, um, a judo business. So he has a school's business and he has a club. Uh, and then I, I did about a year working with him. So I went back down to England from Scotland and set up um, a few schools of my own working under the umbrella of core judo and really enjoyed that actually more than I thought I would um I didn't think sort of schools and club judo would be the thing that that interested me but um I found it really challenging because it was very very different from some of the high performance coaching I'd done so I'd supported a little bit at judo Scotland and as you alluded to I uh, did some work with the VI team with the visually impaired team up to and after the Beijing uh, Paralympics so um I was I was planning on carrying on working with my brother and expanding the, his business to, with him. And then David got back in touch with me and said there was a, a vacancy that they were going to advertise at Judo Scotland, and would I be interested? And it was the um, it was a role with the under twenty one Scottish team. Mm-hmm. So um, it was an opportunity I jumped at actually to be back in Scotland to be working with David with Ewan. Um, Billy was also coaching as well, so it was an opportunity to, to work with Billy. I thought it would yeah, be a great chance to, to step into to performance coaching in an environment where I was comfortable and with people that I, I respected and thought I could learn from. So I was fortunate that I was successful in, in that application. And then, yeah, basically started my um, high-performance coaching apprenticeship at Judo Scotland. Love that. And again, you've thrown out like a load of names there who have been massive figures kind of in British judo. Um, talking of, yeah, Davey, David Somerville, uh, Ewan, obviously Billy Cusack before that, you're talking about Don Werner. Like, how did those guys shape your kind of early expectations or experiences of coaching? Like, how did they shape your attitude, I guess, going into it? I think I've been really, really lucky. I've had some incredibly influential, successful um, and caring people um, in my my experience in judo. So yeah, like you said, I started out with Don Werner, who was yeah just immense. Just he lived and breathed judo. He he had an apartment at the end of the dojo. He spent ninety percent of his time in the dojo or taking us away on trips to Holland or Belgium. Like he lived and breathed judo. So I, I learned from a very early age the the obsession that you can have with the sport and the passion and just also how much he cared about the players. Like, he loved winning, don't get me wrong. Like, he had a, a medal count for every single event from a minimum up until the, the Worlds and Europeans. I remember one European Championships, he had um, the medal score on the board and he put Pinewood on there with other countries. This is a senior European Championships because I think um, Georgina was gold, Karen was silver. So he then had Pinewood on the medal table. And I think Pinewood finished, like, third on the medal table. <laughs> so like he literally counted everything um so i started off uh, with yeah an incredible role model in dawn and then i went to bisham abbey and was um 
Yeah, and an amazing experience there. So Udo Kramers was the um, was a, I think the technical director or the performance director, uh, but was very very hands on. He'd like he just retired as an Olympic champion, and yeah, was incredibly interested and engaged. Uh, I was there with Craig, with uh, Pete Lomax, with uh, Sophie Cox, so with an amazing group of people, uh, and Jamie Johnson, who is now as you know, the um, senior women's coach at British Judo. It was his first uh, step into coaching. And then also with Steve Gawthorpe. So two like amazing characters who, again, were incredibly passionate about judo. Um, very inexperienced. So it, it was wild. It was a wild west of Bisham, but it was a lot of fun. And it, uh, yeah, it was a lot of, there was a lot of peer-to-peer learning going on because both Jamie and Steve were, were pretty new to coaching. They sort of just let us get on with it ourselves a, a lot. So I remember like Craig, uh, Pete Lomax and Tom Davis and I watching videos of, from fighting films because Craig had a, a sponsorship from fighting films. So we'd watch videos or DVDs before the session and then literally just go on the session and try the throws we'd seen on the on the DVD. That was that was the love that. Yeah, pretty much big, the coaching. Big fan of that. But I love that. Yeah. So that was an amazing uh, environment. And then I think I was there for a couple of years, then up to Scotland working with Billy. Uh, and again, an incredible cohort of, of players. There was Ewan, there was uh, Graham Randall, there was David Somerville, Stephen Vidler, Michelle Rogers. It was just an amazing training group. Um, and uh, like Billy just created this incredible environment, this incredible culture. Um, he set it up a little bit, Mourinho-esque, like us versus them, but it was such a, a bonding experience. So I learned a huge amount from 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 those guys and from the, the way Billy created that that environment. And then, of course, um, David then was coming towards the end of his career, and he started stepping into coaching. So he then started to, to coach some of us and had a really good experience with with David, learning from David. And then, really fortunately, uh, Darcel Yanzi became the head coach in Scotland, and. My brother had worked with Darcel at the Budaquay. So my brother was like, listen, you have to, you have to work with him. You have to go along and do some of the technical sessions with him because they're just like nothing else you've experienced. So up until that point, all my experiences of technical judo sessions had been in a, a group format. So um, I went and um, I, I met Darcel a couple of times, but I, I didn't really know him. So I, I made an effort to get to, to know Darcel and... Um, he asked me, he said, would you be interested in doing some work together? And I was very interested and I, I spoke to Billy about it and Billy wasn't as keen and I didn't really understand it at the time um, because it was something I thought could only be a good thing. But now, now I'm a coach, I do understand why Billy had reservations. But as a player, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get my head around it. I thought it could only be good. Like this is somebody who is technically supposedly very good, was very successful as a player. Um, he's offering to help. Uh, and Billy seems to be a little bit reluctant for me to, to do some work with him. But of course, what I understand now is um, Billy was my coach at the time and had a clear idea on how he was developing me or helping me to develop. And he didn't know what this influence was going to bring and how it was going to affect the dynamic. So I would have the same reservations now if I was coaching a player and the player said to me, oh, I want to do my technical sessions with somebody else. Um, I'm not sure I'd feel comfortable with that. And I didn't understand that at that age. So Billy and I had a little bit of a falling out over it because I was adamant that I wanted to do it. And he he, he didn't stop me, but he, he didn't encourage it either. Mm-hmm. But I did it anyway. And it was, yeah, it was incredible. It was, um, it was a bit of a light bulb moment because um, Darcel's style is one-to-one. So you will go with a partner and then he would just coach you and the partner. And basically, he was very creative, very massive. He would um, he would look at your judo, and then from there, he would then start to make suggestions about, okay, what about this, what about that, and start to evolve what you already did and then add to it. But he did it in such a passionate, energetic, creative way that it was just contagious. Like, it, was, it is and, and still is the, the most fun I've had doing judo. Uh, and I think the, the most learning I ever had doing judo um, to the point that is I've stolen that format myself now. So all the work that I do technically with players is on a, a one-to-one basis because um, 
I recognised the the positive effect it had on me as a, as a player. So then I did that for, I think Darcel was in Scotland for maybe a year and a half, two years. So I did that with Darcel, um, mended the relationship with Billy. Um, I, think, I think Billy started to recognise that it did have a positive effect and it wasn't um, changing my relationship with Billy. Like I still really valued, really respected Billy. I wanted Billy in the chair. Like to this day, I still don't think there's anyone better in the chair than, than Billy Cusack. Um, uh, and then Darcel finished in Scotland, went back to to, to London, and I, I maintained that relationship. So I would sometimes travel back and continue to do technical stuff with Darcel. And then there was a period uh, I continued in Scotland. And then when I went back to work with my brother, like I said, I think that was, I was in my early thirties at that stage. I, um, I trained at Camberley with, uh, Luke Preston and the guys, I did that for about six or seven months. So I also then got, um, to experience what that environment was like working with Luke and, and his style of coaching. Um, and Luke is again, different from, from Billy, who is very, um, conflict, driven um luke also i think sometimes likes conflict or doesn't shy away from it but he's very um very personal very sort of low-key quiet conversations and very good at just nudging and influencing uh, and a different style of coaching and it was great to experience that and i've really i've really actually enjoyed my the six months seven months i did at Cambly. like it was a, a much um more of a gorilla approach like you're <laughs> In the, in the hut next door, you sat with, with the boys, you, know, you make a lunch uh, and hanging out and then you're in the, the small dojo. No, it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And then back to Scotland where I then started. So the last um, two years of my career, so from 30, I think I finished at 33. So from 31 to 33, I was player coach. So yeah. I was still doing the, the last bit up to compete at the Commonwealth Games, but I also undertook the role of the, the 21 coach. So then that was a, an interesting experience because at some point I realized, actually, I'm enjoying coaching more than I am competing now. So I had this, this sort of crossroads moment where I wasn't sure if I was going to carry on and do the Commonwealth Games. Because, oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It, it was because I, I really sort of, I was finding it harder and harder to motivate myself to train, but I was enjoying more and more the the energy that I was was getting from the guys that I was coaching, yeah. So it's interesting because a lot of people talk about having a difficult transition after they um, they finish competing, yeah. And I realised I was so lucky because I never had that. I had the opposite effect. So <laughs> I, I I had this situation where actually I felt responsible to carry on competing for the last sort of year because I'd made commitments to Euro Scotland, made commitments to, to Dave in the programme, but also made commitments to myself and my family that the Commonwealth Games would be the, the final event. Yeah. Um, but I'd realised that actually there was something else that I was enjoying a lot more. And I think one of the things, as an athlete, you, you have to make a lot of decisions that are for you and about you. And it, it can be quite selfish. And like I say, I was 32 at that stage, something like that. And for the last sort of 11 years, I'd been making lots of selfish decisions. Um, started to coach. Finally, it felt different. It was more about other people. Don't get me wrong. Like, I got a huge amount from coaching. Like, it made me feel good coaching people. So it, it wasn't this... Um, this one-way experience where I was just given to them and it was all about the athletes. Of course, I got a lot from it too. But um, I realised it was a nicer feeling than competing. No, I love so, that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. I think, um, interesting talking about Commonwealth Games, several of the guys I've had come on to the show talk about how that last couple of years between London and Glasgow was quite challenging because they already knew they were already as you can discuss yourself got other plans in mind they knew it's going to be the end points and um they're already looking to, to things in the future um but yeah i don't think the experience described is not philanthropic i think you are 
talking about something, yeah, not being selfish. And it is exciting to coach. You've kind of referenced some of those early coaching experiences with a really light touch. Um, you ended up coaching at a Paralympics in 2008 and again in 2012. Do you, looking back, knowing now that you've got six years, eight years of coaching behind you, do you feel you were prepared for the scale of those events? Was it different because you were coaching people who were maybe your peers as opposed to um, like that coach-athlete relationship? Was it a different experience? Oh, I think, yeah. Ignorance is bliss. Like I, uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, um, so, so I coached in, in Beijing and um, I coached, uh, I think, one or two European championships for the visually impaired and a, a world championships for the yeah. visually impaired. But, um, but yeah, I wasn't a coach. I was a player. I was, I was, I was a training partner with Sam, and then. I can't even remember exactly what you were. You got injured. You were supposed to go to Beijing. Yes. I wasn't even supposed to go to Beijing. So Last minute caller. Stepped into. Yeah. <laughs> so you got injured. So then last minute, um, they asked me, oh, look, will you go as a sound training partner? I said, yeah, no problem. And then there was somebody, like Steve, was, Steve Gawthorpe was at that stage the head Paralympic coach. And there was someone that was assisting, but for whatever reason, that had stopped. And then Steve just said to me, listen, Matt, um, what do you think about assisting me as the as Paralympic coach? He said, you can do it part-time, just come on the trips. And I was like, yeah, okay. And basically, it just it started like that. And then I was obviously, I was Sam's coach, or not Sam's coach, I was Sam's training partner who sat in the chair at the Europeans, World and Paralympics. And I knew his judo, his obviously training partner. And... I had a good idea of what motivated him. So basically that was it. I would just shout motivational stuff and what I thought he should do from the chair. And I think, and here's the thing, like actually at that time, that's all Sam needed. Mm -hmm. Sam was pretty new to judo. Um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying it. He could only do Katagaruma at the time. <laughs> so it wasn't like I had to shout a lot. Um, and he was a competitive beast. He was just, I was born to fight and compete. So you just had to keep him sort of on the tracks. Yeah. And like, like Sam had a little bit of a tendency to over rev to, yeah, to get yeah, yeah. too hyped up. So it was ju just sort of helping him manage that. And then, yeah, off he went. And uh, yeah, and it was just great fun. Like Sam is the most, he's the most fun person to be away with. Like he's got a great sense of humor. Uh, ruthlessly will tear into everybody and anybody speaks his mind even when he really really shouldn't so yeah it was a lot of fun but if I look back now I wasn't coaching <laughs> I love I love the honesty it's interesting though like uh, and that you recognize the changes but again you're doing it at such a high kind of well the the top level event you could do with yeah. with the para guys um what did it feel to be are you, are you conscious when you're doing it were you conscious of being on that stage or again are you are you more conscious of it now that you're um this is actually your role again i think i was really lucky like i said earlier that for a long long time i'd had billy coaching me mat side <laughs> so i just mimicked what he'd done like it I just copied it because it was it was so effective for me and uh, the people around me. So you and uh, you experienced it yourself, David, Graham Randall, the girls, Sally, Sarah, um, Sarah Clark, like all of those people that that Billy coached. I can't remember James Miller. He he had an an incredible way of knowing or understanding what each of them needed. Like he he did it with everyone in a slightly different way. Like he was, he was true to himself, but he would adjust it according to the athlete. And um, I learned so much from him, Matt's side, that, yeah, I just copied that. Like I didn't really, I didn't understand what I was doing. Like now I have a much better idea of what I'm doing, what I'm projecting, why I'm projecting it when I'm Matt's side coaching. I like, I, I really, really take time to think about it and understand it. When I was in Beijing, yeah, I just copied Billy. What would Billy have said or done? Love that. Um, so I'm going to fast forward now all the way 
kind of up to the present. You've been coaching with the Dutch team since 2019. Yep. Oh, look at that. Showing off my other bit of research. <laughs> um, how would you describe the Dutch style? As in, for, for me, there's quite a clear kind of emphasis on physicality. But again, I think that possibly detracts from, you know, they're very, very capable judo players. Is it is it that simple? Or? Um, well, to a degree, yes. So they are physically very, very strong, very, very good. And I, can, I know that when I speak to the British players, um, they don't particularly like training in the Netherlands because they say, oh, they're so stiff. Mm -hmm. But um, I also think it's one of the reasons they are so effective in tournament is yeah. because the, the training is not so dissimilar to competition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they don't play in Randori. Like, open Randori is a concept that is, um, is not practiced so much in the Netherlands. Like, JP and I tried to introduce it a couple of times. Doesn't really fly. <laughs> but, 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 like I say, I do think it means that they are also more specific in their Randori training for competition. Okay. So, um, there, 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 there's a school of thought that the... So there is a, a lot of the Dutch players will fight with two hands on the chest, mm -hmm. which I have coined double Dutch. <laughs> oh, wait, that's the tagline of the episode. <laughs> so, yeah, so they let's all stop there. Them. Let's stop there. This is <laughs> peak. It's not going to get any better. Um, so. But supposedly the, the double Dutch grip came from Ken Amu, the one of the Dutch clubs here in Harlem, Amsterdam. Uh, and it came as a result of they were struggling against the, the Japanese Korean style where it was very flowing, very fast, very kumikata orientated, and they weren't able to get a foothold in the match. Yeah. So then they, they did a, some analysis, uh, some brainstorming, and they're like, right, we can get two hands on the chest relatively easily. From there, we can reduce the Kumikata options, we can reduce the opponent from being able to turn, and we can start to then implement our own style. So very quickly, that became the dominant style in the Netherlands. Because of course, you start doing that against your opponents, your opponents then have to adjust, what do they do? They also start grip, gripping double Dutch. Yeah. So then, quite quickly, that became one, one of the dominant forms. Then the other dominant form came from De Korta in Rotterdam, which is very traditional. That's where Mark Hoising is from, Edith Bosch, a okay, lot of the yeah, successful yeah. girls. Yeah, and that's a lot more traditional. So the training apparently is a lot more in the Japanese style. So you then have these two, two forces that were basically going against each other, and that really propelled Dutch judo. So one side of it is very, very physical, the double Dutch, and the other side is much, much more technical. You've kind of you've kind of beat me to my next point. I was going to ask you to contrast and compare, yeah, the the styles, which which I think are the conflicting styles of like a, a Hank Grohl and a and a yep. Mark Housinger, who I mean, yep. arguably like two of the most successful players that the Dutch have had. Um, but I think it is it's no coincidence that the, the Dutch system is successful um, because you had those two competing forces, so they pushed each other's style more and more to the to the point where you the both are effective why so what is it that makes them effective and i'm i'm asking this in the context that uh, at the moment gb women are incredibly strong however mm -hmm. we or have been for a long time struggling to get the same success through yep, the, the men's men. team yeah um is there you know, as it were, as we all want from martial arts, a magic button, a secret ingredient, or is it a case of like, again, you've, you've kind of referenced it, that they are so clear on their style that, uh, again, I know, I know the answer is that it's much more, much broader than that, but like, is, is you there, you know what the answer there? is? It depends. Of course, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a million dollar question, especially for, for British judo. Sort of, I think ah, it's going to sound cliche. You need a critical mass. So judo is still very popular in the Netherlands. There's still a lot of people doing judo. Um, 
So different from the UK system in that in schools, there are no sports clubs. So you do um, all your sports outside of school. Okay. So judo clubs are very prevalent and as judo clubs, not as businesses that come into schools. Okay. So people have uh, a dojo and a gym and lots and lots of kids still go to judo. Yeah. So you already have more numbers doing it. And also the Dutch way of approaching things is quite individualistic and very, very competitive and very, very direct. So if they're doing something, they're doing it to be the best, the best at it. So then very quickly you have more numbers and you have a, a competitive group of people. And then the club system is still very strong. So the clubs are also competing against each other. Well, in, in not, in a, not in a detrimental negative way, but in, in a positive, okay, well, uh, let's keep building and, and pushing each other. And then, and then out, out of that, they then centralized the, the program after the Rio Olympics, um, initially for senior players. And now we have an academy for, for juniors. I'm uh, jumping around all over the show now. So you, you obviously moved to to the Netherlands uh, three years ago. Like what yep. goes into that decision, like working abroad? You, you had had experience with GB Judo. You'd, you'd finished with GB Judo. What kind of went into the decision to kind of set up shop over there? Um, so I worked at GB Judo and I, I loved my time at GB Judo. Uh, well, at first in Scotland, I was at Judo Scotland and I really, really love working at Judo Scotland, working with, with the under 21 program. But it was a it was an apprenticeship program done with Judo Scotland and Sports Scotland. And I think it was a two-year apprenticeship. And then at the end of that apprenticeship, the position was funded by Sports Scotland. There was no guarantee of a job. Um, mm -hmm. so I was speaking with David, who was still the performance director or head coach, I think is the equivalent at Judo Scotland, and sort of said to him, okay, Dave, we're starting to get to, to the end. Is there uh, a job at the end of this or do I need to look? And he couldn't say, like, it, he wasn't sure. Like, the situation with finances, coaching positions, all the rest of it, he really couldn't tell me what, what was going to happen. And just happened that British Judo advertised for a, a junior assistant coach. So Jamie Johnson was the head coach for the juniors. So going full circle, back to Bisham days, um, I applied for, for the job and I got the job and ended up as Jamie's assistant at British Judo, working with the under-21s. So I was there for, what was that? I think that was 2015 until like 2018. So I was there three years. And in the course of, of that period, Jamie moved up to the senior. So then I became the lead coach for the juniors and then we extended that to the under 23s. So then I was the lead coach for the juniors in the under 23s. Then we brought Colin in and Colin was my assistant, Colin Oates. Um, and then Denny was initially the VI coach, uh, but then he also became a junior coach. So then the three of us, Denny, Colin and I, were running the, the junior under 23 program. And like I said to you uh, earlier, before we, we started, I think that was my favorite time uh, in coaching. Like we, we developed this community of practice with Dennis Edwards as our mentor and just went on this amazing journey uh, of learning about coaching. Mm -hmm. Like we all had a good idea about judo, but we didn't have much of an understanding of coaching. Yeah. And, and Dennis just has this incredible way about him of recognizing the moment when you are ready to pick up uh, a new concept or a new idea and run with it and the amount of times he did that with the three of us and then we would bounce off each other and really just accelerate our learning so for example like he introduces to to flow states yeah i would never heard of like a flow state before so he introduces the content of a flow state and then we started to play with the idea of oh how could you do that in judo how could you identify the i think there were 17 triggers how can you identify these triggers in judo what do they look like how could we start to to pull these triggers and and then from there we would then it just grew and grew so then we recognized that okay so one of the triggers is, is humility is, is humility important 
but then we started to do a little bit of research into humility and gratitude and how they were linked and, and their place and also in the history of judo how they how they fit but also how in a combat sport in a fighting sport you can use concepts like humility and gratitude to accelerate learning and it was it like it was just amazing and there were other aspects of skill acquisition and elements of philosophy and all of these things just came into this melting pot and had so much fun basically experimenting experimenting with the, the under 21s and the under 23s with our coaching because it's an age group where you have a little bit of room to do that mm -hmm. it, it's not it's different with seniors with seniors hopefully you've got a good idea of what you're doing and why you're doing it yeah. because they don't have as long and if you're making big mistakes with them, of course you're always making small mistakes uh, but if you're making big mistakes with them then you can really affect their, their career whereas with the, with the juniors then it's not so impactful yeah. if you're making those mistakes as long as you're learning from them so the three of us um yeah just had an amazing time bouncing off each other challenging each other um no one was really in the lead and that was the the beautiful thing like everyone had, had a, an equal voice and could could bring something new to the table and mm -hmm. without even realizing so there are some so there's some rules to like a community of practice yeah. and we didn't even realize we were in one and we didn't even realize we were following any rules until dennis told us oh guys by the way this is what you're doing this is what companies like IBM and Google spend millions trying to create and we're in it. And we're like, oh, okay, that's nice. Love that. And again, like I said to you, like I realized I was in something special at the time, but it wasn't until I ended up uh, finishing the British Judo and, and moving abroad, do I realize how special that was and how, how, difficult that is to create and i'm not even sure if you can create it like i think you need a um, a set of environmental factors that sort of allow it to happen and, and that's just we had the perfect storm uh, yeah. at british judo yeah. um and to to the degree that the three of us are still in the four of us are still in contact and still catch up periodically we will we'll catch up on on facetime or video call uh, and still and still we call it counterintuitive coaching so okay. we have a group and yeah someone will throw in uh, an idea or concept and from there we just bounce it around and, and see where it takes us and just try and sort of create some new knowledge for ourselves you say you say it's something you're not sure whether you can create is it something you've tried to create over uh, in the dutch system or have you not had the opportunity again because you're working with a different group of athletes yeah so it's it's more with the coaches um, and uh, the conditions aren't quite there for it yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, if there's ever the opportunity to to create those conditions, yeah, I will jump at it. Um, one of the ways I we tried to do it was hijacking it by trying to get... So when Denny finished at British Judo, I was very keen on seeing if it would be possible for Denny to come and work in the Netherlands. Because yeah. that was one way I was thinking I can hijack it and um, get those conditions and have that community of practice again. But unfortunately, for various reasons, it, it didn't work out. Okay. No, I love that. that. That's clearly something you'd love to recreate where you are now or something you've tried to keep going in a position. Yeah. So Bring... your, your original question was about um, how I ended up here. Mm. So um, I, I, I didn't finish. <laughs> so the, um, the, unfortunately... The, the community of practice we had um, was misunderstood, I think, at British Judo. So the three of us became very close uh, and worked very well together, but we didn't, we, I didn't do a good enough job of, of sharing that with, with Nigel, basically, mm -hmm. with, with making, with making him feel comfortable with it. I think, it seemed like we were a breakaway group and I was the head of that group and that um, it wasn't aligned with, with British Judo and with his way of, of thinking. Um, so that came to a head at uh, the end of 2018 and Nigel didn't believe that I was the best fit for British Judo any longer. 
So we had a conversation about that and we agreed that by mutual consent, um, I will stop working with British Judo, um, which was which was devastated because I'm very patriotic. I'm very loyal to the players that I worked with uh, and the coaches that I worked with. Um, and I never thought of myself working anywhere but British Judo. Mm-hmm. Like if I was going to coach and coach internationally, why would I coach anywhere other than for Great Britain? Did you... Did you think you'd get another opportunity to coach at that level in a different um, system? Or I wasn't sure. It was it was the is the honest answer. Um, I felt that I was um, a, a relatively good young coach who was keen to learn and had a lot to offer. But at that stage, I'd only coached juniors. Um, a couple of I'd coached a couple of junior world medalists, a couple of junior European medalists but nothing that would really stand out on your CV to any other countries. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a concern. And then there was um, a job with Welsh Judo. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I've been the British coach. There's a job with Welsh Judo. Um, that, sh- that could be a good fit. Like, I should be sort of off the level for that. Um, so I did the, the application, uh, did an interview, did a, a non, a not an online session, an actual session that was part of the process. Um, very, I, I think there was very good feedback from the session. So I was relatively confident that uh, I could get that job. I didn't. Um, Craig actually got it, so couldn't really complain about that. I was like, okay, fair enough. But I love Craig. Like, good for him. But I did start to think, oh, shit. Sorry, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear. Yeah, um, you, can, you can swear. Um, I was thinking, hmm. Maybe I'm not going to get back into international judo. Maybe, maybe yeah, this is done. Uh, and so I went back and I, I started doing some work with my brother, but I really wasn't motivated. I was probably a little bit depressed. Um, he and I didn't get on great during that period. Um, and then I got a, um, a text message from the Bundesliga team that I used to fight for, from Mario. Mario Schendel yeah, reached yeah. out to me. And he's like, uh, hey, Matt, um, you told me that you're, you're not coaching at the moment. There's a job in uh, Essendon if you're interested. So I was like, ah, okay. Um, so got in contact with the, the CEO of Essendon. Uh, they invited me over. I did a week there. And they were like, listen, well, we think you're great for the job. Um, we want you to start straight away. So in March 2019, I moved over to, to Essendon, which is not far from Stuttgart. And I um, started working there. And now, again, I said to you uh, before we started recording, the guys were fantastic. Lovely, lovely, like the board, the, the other coaches. Big club, like over 800 members, huge club. But um, a very, very small performance group. And they, they wanted to take the, the performance group and build it. But it was predominantly a, a kids club. Okay. And my, my role was, I think they called me sports director. So my job was to develop lots of aspects of the club, um, the, the culture, the coaching culture, uh, develop the coaches, but also focus on the t- performance element myself. Um, and I didn't really appreciate the, the role I was undertaking. And I started doing it and I realised quite quickly that I missed international coaching. I missed the day-to-day work with the players, um, pushing ourselves, challenging ourselves, going to a tournament, getting feedback, realizing, okay, yeah, this is working, this isn't working. I missed that. Like the job I was doing there as sports director was a was a good job, but maybe something you want to do before you retire. Yeah. It wasn't something that, as a someone in their early thirties who was really motivated to to be uh, to have their finger on the pulse of international judo yeah it it wasn't yeah it wasn't floating my boat so i've been there three months and i was a little i was a, a bit homesick i was a little bit lonely wasn't great at speaking the language i was terrible at speaking the language let's be honest um <laughs> and then has that improved my savior is that, that my savior improved? and your your next podcast uh john paul bell called me and he was like, uh, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm in Germany. He's like, how is it? I was like, 
yeah. He's like, right, we're, we're looking for a coach in Holland. You interested? And I was like, yes. Like, snap me up. I'm there. I mean, whatever. <laughs> and then, of course, I felt so bad because this I've only been three months in Germany and these guys have been bending over backwards to, to help me integrate and fit in and all the rest of it. Um, so I was just really honest with them. Like, I, I went and sat down with them and I said, look, this is a situation. Um, I appreciate everything you've done, but I'm not loving it. And I've been contacted by the Dutch judo bond. They're interested in me coaching at the centralized center in Papendal. Um, and they were great. They, they were really, really understanding, really, really supportive. They, they just asked if I was successful, um, would I carry on in a consultant fashion for a period of time until they, they got another coach? So, so that's what happened. So I met with Martin Ahrens at the airport in Amsterdam and a great meeting with him and the technical director. They offered me a position working as the under 23 coach at Papendale. Um, so I think I started um, a couple of weeks later and then carried on for the rest of the year supporting Esslingen with just some consultancy work. And then that finished at the end of the year. And then um, I carried on full time in, in the Netherlands. Love that. Um, and was so grateful, like, <laughs> because, like, like you asked, did I think I was going to get back into international coaching at that stage? No. And then to, for it to happen so quickly, and we're with such a good team, like, so, like, like you just you said, Hen Grohl was on the mat, uh, Roy Mayer, Michael Carell, Frank DeWitt, Noel Van Ed. I'm like, wow, okay. So this now, like, and also that's the other thing, like, you're like, holy shit, I better coach. I better be able to coach because I'm going to get found out otherwise. Do you get that imposter syndrome? Like, you're kind of alluding to it there. Do you get that moment where you're going, oh, fuck, I'm on the mat with all these world and Olympic medalists. <laughs> Can I do this? Definitely. Definitely. Because, like, here was the thing, like, at British Judo, my level of performance was, at that stage, higher than the athletes I was working with. Mm-hmm. Like they were competing at junior junior events and under 23s. I'd won a junior European silver medal. I'd won multiple World Cup medals. So I was confident in myself that, okay, at the moment, my level performance is higher than theirs. That gives me a bit of credibility, a bit of kudos, yeah, a bit yeah. of reassurance. I go to the Netherlands and suddenly, oh, most of these guys have performed at a much higher level than me. And <laughs> now I've got to coach them. Oh, shit. Okay. Right. And the other thing, I remember this as well. So the first time, like, I'm introduced to the group of guys I'm working with. Now, at the time, I wasn't directly working with, with any of those players. Um, but I was on the mat taking sessions that they were on. So you, you still have that, that sense of, OK, am I an imposter or can I actually offer something to these guys? Yeah. But I was introduced to the, the under-23 guys that I'm working with. And... Um, I immediately realized one of the things that I had relied on at British Judo was my size. Yeah. In British Judo, like, I'm pretty tall. I'm 187 centimeters. I was around sort of 90 kilos. Like, I used my, my stature as, as my presence to, to feel comfortable, to sort of protect myself. I then had to look up at the group that I was coaching. And, like, I shit you not, I felt small. <laughs> like, so I had um, Yella, who was like 100 kilos. I had Simeon, who was like 105 kilos. Uh, Yer was there, who was like 130 kilos. And there was uh, Ferdy, Tom. All of these people were bigger than me. And for the first time in my life, I was like, oh, my God, I can't even rely on my size to, to put myself in this environment. So it was, a, yeah, it was a, a shock. Does it, does it take a bit of time to get buy-in from those guys? Or are they on board straight away? It depends. So with some of them, they're, they're used to the, the hierarchy and respect from judo. So just immediately you're given it because you're a coach. With others, no, you have to earn your stripes. So they're like, okay, I'm going to see what this guy knows, whether he can offer me anything. Otherwise, yeah, I'm not interested. So a little bit. And then, um, as I said to you again earlier, I use Niwaza as a way in. Yeah, so I'd been on I'd been on a few camps as a GB coach, and I'd done Niwaza with with Michael Carell, with with Frank, with Noel, 
So I knew that I could give them a good match and sometimes score on them in Niwaza. So I thought, okay, this is my end. Like somehow you need to create a little bit of credibility. Yeah. So quite early on, I did Niwaza with the guys. So I was able to get a position, score on them. And they were able to go, oh, okay. At least if there's only one thing you can do, you can be a good partner for Niwaza. <laughs> okay. But like so, you say, it gives you that credibility. It allows you to get a little bit of an in. and you It gives you a foot it. in the door. Yeah. Like, it gives you a platform where people go, okay, you can do a bit. I'll give him a chance. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, then, then you have to coach. Then it's not enough just to be able to do judo. Now you have to be able to coach. Now you have to build trust, build rapport, build understanding with the players. Now you have to have a coaching process so that you can help them move as quickly as they can from where they are to hopefully where they want to get to. What's the pressure like as a coach? Like you, you've been a player, you've performed at the top level as a player, mm-hmm. but yeah. how does that compare to the pressure as a coach? Um, how does it compare? It's different. Um, as a player, ultimately it's in your hands. Like you get to go on the mat, you get to grip up, you get to have a, a direct influence on, on the outcome. As a coach, that's all taken away. There, there's nothing tangible that you can actually influence. You you support and guide your players. Um, but once they step on the mat, they're the ones that have to do, have to have to do it. Like you you encourage the sport as much as you can, but um, it's out of your hands at that stage. Like as a coach, if you haven't done the work, you're not going to save it on the day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the the pressure actually for me comes long before the tournament. Like the pressure is, okay, have I got my, my coaching process as refined as I possibly can? Am I doing the things that I think are necessary as well as I can day in, day out? Am I helping these guys find out what they're capable of? That's where that's where the real pressure is. Then when we get to the tournament, okay, like the work's done or it's not. And now we find out. Now we get some feedback and we just reflect on that. Love that. But more and more, like that's how I feel at the tournament now. So actually, I don't tend to get too stressed or feel the pressure at tournament. Is that a reflection of the success you're having? Um, and, um, and what makes me think of that is as a Villa fan who've had, um, you know, numerous managers over the last, you know, 10 years who have had no success at all, um, you know, to varying degrees, obviously. But because you are getting some success, does that buy you like a longevity? Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. I think so. You can read as many academic papers as you want and concepts on coaching. And from those, you then form your own personal construct. You form, okay, this is what I believe at the moment. Based on my experiences, based on the experience of others, what I've read, okay. This is what I'm going to go with. This is my coaching process. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no guarantee that it works. And it's, you adapt it and flex it for each individual. But you have a, I have a a general coaching process that I follow. Um, But of course, until you start having success, you don't know whether you're in the the ballpark or not. But um, fortunately enough, like, this year with the players I've been working with for a couple of years. And here's the thing about coaching process. Like it's not a quick fix. It's at least a year, if not two years of work with those players before you're really coaching them. Yeah. So people like yeah, Yella, I've been coaching those guys for over two years now. So we can start to probably say that some of the processes we put in place are now having an effect. So, as a result of that, yeah, I, I think I feel a lot more reassured that, okay, I'm somewhere in the right ballpark. 
Um, the guys are winning medals on the IGF tour. Yeah, was European champion this year. Okay. I think we've got an idea. And then, of course, it's, it's about constantly evaluating that and, and tweaking that and, and developing it. Like, it will never be finished. Like, that's, that's what I've come to realise about what coaching is for me. Coaching is my, at the moment, my pursuit of mastery. So, yes, the results are nice. And do I feel better when the guys have performed well and won a medal? Of course I do. Do I feel like shit when they perform well and not one? Yeah, of course. But I keep coming back to actually the reason I do coaching is because if I'm thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this is how I pursue mastery. This this is right now my purpose. So what what's next for you? Um, you, you're working with a group of guys you've, you've referenced um, certainly a, a couple of the heavyweight guys that you're working with uh, Euro speakers, uh, Yellow Sneeper who I've definitely butchered their names um, you can correct no, me no, you, did that. you did very well actually <laughs> but um, yeah they are meddling on the world tour with a frequency they're clearly looking at uh, Paris 2024 is that what you're working towards are you already looking beyond that as a coach like what's next yeah so um the the coaching structure we have in the netherlands i'm an olympic coach along with john paul bell for the men's line and we each have six athletes and i have a slightly younger cohort so i have the, the two boys you mentioned plus Jesper smink uh simeon katarina uh, and then two two younger players who have just moved up from uh, juniors so tigo renes who was second at the Europeans and Worlds for Juniors, and Jules Blom, who was fifth at the Junior Worlds at heavyweight. So, yeah, I have an eye on 2024 for the first four boys, and then more 2028 for some of those guys, but also for the two younger guys that have uh, joined the group. And the so we, we also have a, an under-23 coach that the two younger boys could have gone to, but we had this idea of, of trying to fast track the guys because of their level of performance yeah. at the Junior Worlds um, with the idea that, one, we might be able to take out a transition point. So rather than having an additional coach in the transition coach, move them straight to an Olympic coach. But also more what I've noticed is how much they learn from the group itself. Yeah. So Jules is, um, is 20, 21, is 20 years old. Um, 127 kilos, um, over two meters tall. The guy is ginormous. He's a pleasure to work with. And so it was a natural fit for him to, to come to my group because I have two other heavyweights in Yer and Yellow. Yeah. But uh, what, what I hadn't appreciated, but, uh, but I do now, is what a great influence they are on him and yeah. that he learns more from them than he does from me in the, in the sessions that we do together. Uh, and I've also noticed the same with, with Tigo. So Tigo, as it describes, is already successful at the under-21 level. But his progress in uh, the last six months in terms of his understanding of his judo and his training behaviours has been incredible because of the environment and the conditions that he's in with the Olympic group. So because those guys are demonstrating and role modelling behaviours that he hasn't really experienced before, very quickly almost like through osmosis, he's picking those up. I love that. So, yeah, so the power of the, of the group is incredible. It's so important. And you start to realise all the stuff about culture and why it's so important. Just on a, on a micro scale like that, I see it on a daily basis. Do you find it brings tension as well? Like you, you're clearly talking about all the, the positive aspects of having such a great group, but you, you're talking there of three, four, five under hundreds and at least three plus hundred boys um, yep. who are all young. You, again, you're talking about the guys aiming for this cycle, but the reality is I think um, Sneepy and Speakers are only early 20s. They've definitely got another cycle in them. You're talking about someone else who is, uh, is, it, is it Blom, who's junior world silver medalist at heavyweight. They're all going to be there or thereabouts. I'd imagine if, if they want to stay within the sport for, you know, LA. In, in four yeah. years' time. Does it bring tension? Is that something you have to be really conscious of? 
I think it could. Of course it could. Um, however, I think I think in a certain way about judo. So as an athlete, I firmly believe it was an individual sport mm-hmm. and you did it on your own for yourself. As a coach, I think very differently. I think that um, judo is a, is a team sport and that at the very least it's a partner sport that you can't do it on your own. It's not like golf. Like if I want to go and play 18 holes of golf, I can go and do that on my own. If I want to do 10 randories, I can't do that on my own. The very least, I need a partner. Now, if I want to get lots of different stimulus that allow me to learn, I need multiple partners giving me multiple stimulus. So really already, it's a team sport. If I want to get really good at judo, I need a team of people that can give me different experiences, which I can reflect on and learn from. Mm-hmm. So I very much have that approach that um, actually we're not doing this on our own. So three heavyweights, we are working together as a team to, to be as good as we can be. And we're not competing against each other. How? Like, like, like Federer and Nadal, I use that analogy all the time. They credit each other for the level that they got to. They say without the other, they wouldn't be where they are. Course. And I, I suppose it, it goes back to the, the humility and gratitude thing that we that I touched on earlier. Mm-hmm. I really try and promote that in the group as well. And is it something that you, I think you've, you've kind of said that already that you, you're directly trying to promote it? Um, I think, again, the group of athletes you're talking about, the goal is always going to be Olympics and an Olympic medal, of which only one can go Um, and the other two I'm sure would be bitterly disappointed if they didn't make it are you is it something that you're always conscious of feeding back that you are part of a team that they are all part of each other's journey um, towards this goal and that um, yeah their their journey towards the the goal is like no less kind of diminished if they don't make it I guess Um, yeah yeah definitely like He's like, you say it to the boys that, um, like, yeah, okay, there is one place in the Olympics. And the person who, for whatever reason, is highest on the world ranking because they performed more consistently will, will go to that event. Um, but you have played a part in that. So if they do go on to be successful at the Olympics, you have played a part in that. Um, and, yeah, I can understand that you'll be disappointed that it wasn't you, but you still had a big impact. And we can, if we can look at ourselves in the mirror and say that we did everything we could as well as we could, uh, and okay, we fell short, that's okay. And if we've also helped our teammate to achieve that and they, and, and they get to that level, then that's something we can be proud of too. But it, yeah, it's, it's something that I, I constantly am mindful of, that uh, I'm creating an environment that is a, a positive environment, that we, we challenge each other, but we support each other, and that we can't do it without one another. Mm-hmm. So, like the, the, and I'm lucky that the boys I'm working with, they get that, and yeah. they recognize that that's a much more enjoyable environment to be in than one that is about rivalry and competing against your teammate. So it's not a hard sell. Like, Love so my, my plus under guys, they do their technical sessions together. They fight each other in Randori. I coach both of them in the Randori. And there's never an issue. They're never upset that I've coached one more than that because they understand that we're doing what's best for, for the team, for, mm-hmm. for everybody. So if Yer is fighting Jules, I will spend 90% of the practice coaching Jules. Because if I can help Jules to make those steps, make those progress, and give you more challenge in the Randori, that's only good for both of them. Yeah. So there, there's a great understanding in the group that we are trying to lift each other up, not push each other down. Cool. So what's next this year? Like we're we're reaching the back end of the year. There's a handful of IGF tournaments left. Um, where where are you out to? Um, and then I feel like I've taken up enough of your time. And... Um, so there, there are two IGF tour events left. Um, Tokyo, 
which our women's team are going to do, but the men's team, we decided that um, we're not going to do those, mainly because of the budget. So um, the budget got stretched this year. Um, so we're pretty much a breaking point. Uh, but the last event is the Masters, and the Masters is a big point scoring event for Olympic qualifying. Mm-hmm. And we've got the nice thing about the Masters is the only IGF event where you can have more than two players in. So with a bit of luck, uh, all three of the heavyweights, so Yer, Roy Mayer and Yella, will all qualify. They're all currently um, top 36 in the world. So we'll be taking, I think it's nine men to the Masters. Awesome. That's a hell of achievement. Um, yeah. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for giving up your time. Good luck to you and the guys as they go out to these events. Um, I'm sure it'd be incredible, but mate, it's been, it was great catching up and it's been fantastic to kind of hear your story, a little bit of your philosophy, uh, talking about the way you talk through judo. Um, and I've no doubt I will badger you again and again. Everyone listening, it's taken about three years to get him to come back on <laughs> the podcast. That's um, when I hadn't achieved anything as a coach. I was like, no, I can't come on yet. I need to at least have got some results. Not at all. You've you've had a yeah an incredible career, um, and it's, yeah, it's amazing to hear some of that insight. Um, so I'll be back in touch. But thank you, thank you for your time. It's a pleasure. Anytime, James. <laughs> uh, guys, all the usual nonsense. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Like, subscribe. Blah blah blah. I will catch you soon.